Welcome to Fosbury Flop, a podcast for the crazy ones who are not fond of rules. A podcast about the geniuses who change the world. I wish I could describe John Keely just as a high-level coach that has worked with elite performers or as a professor in performance and innovation in the University of Limerick. It is much more difficult to introduce him. John Keeley had been able to stop for a moment, analyze why coaches behave and think as we do, and created for himself an extraordinary mindset that embraces the complexity of sport. Luckily for us, he has shared his lessons in many papers, and I feel extremely grateful to be able to discover the mind of an amazing sports professional. Welcome, John, and thank you very much for, for accepting the invitation. Uh, my pleasure, Marty. Uh, good to talk to you. It's, it's nice because I remember that I met you with your paper, Periodization Theory, Confronting an, an Inconvenient Truth. And it's amazing the just a small paper, the big effect it made to me, just to start realizing or noticing the the big bag of unconscious beliefs, ideas that we all carry, but, but usually we are not conscious about. And I think this has helped me a lot along the coaching and, and life path. So thank you very much about that. Oh, well, first of all, uh, thanks for, um, for saying that. I, I think there are ideas that have been in my head for a, a long time, you know, um, I've, I've been working in sports. So that paper came out in 2018. I've been working in international level sport for maybe 20 years at that stage. I'd also been a competitor. I com competed in, in internationally before that. So it took a long time for those thoughts to evolve. It wasn't like, you know, I'm a genius or anything like that. It, it, it just took a long time and a lot of um, mistakes along the way to to just recognize something that I don't think we do widely recognize. And that is the fact that we're inclined to think about the training process as a predictable process. Uh, and because it's predictable, we feel we can, we can plan it properly in advance. But obviously, as you know, lots of things impact how athletes adapt to training. Uh, and those things are very nonlinear. And there's all types of complex interactions between your emotional state, your psychological state, your physiological state. All of these things interact. And all of these things may, may ensure that I will respond differently to training than you to the same training you will respond differently to the same training at different points over your career. And that it's it's really not possible to accurately predict how an athlete will respond to training. So, so that's, I guess, the observation. But when we look at training theory and how training theory has evolved, then in a way, training theory is founded on a presumption that you can predict adequately but no one will say you can predict perfectly but yet the assumption is 
embedded in a lot of how we prescribe training, how we plan training, how we plan rehab and return to play. All of those things, there's a, a kind of an underlying layer of an assumptions that if we do this, we will get this reliable outcome, this reliable result out the other end. And that's just not the case. You have to put a lot of uh, different influences in play to get an optimal response. But you don't know in advance how someone will respond. Completely agree. The, I wanted to start the podcast in a similar way as you, uh, as you start the, the periodization theory paper in which you expose how Steven Pinker, I think in the journal Nature, exposed a question, no? like which tip or, or guideline could he give in order to improve everyone's uh, cognitive toolkit? And I, and I was thinking of, I, I cannot predict, but maybe expect, like which is the belief you think that every coach, research, a strength and conditional coach should remove in order to improve his or her methods? Okay, well, for me, I think that belief would be um, that belief that we, we can anticipate the effects of training we implement now. So in other words, if I give this athlete this type of training, this will happen. And we, every line of evidence seems to suggest that, no, you can't predict. Now, you can broadly predict. You can predict in a very um, blunt way. So if, if we do three months of strength training, your strength in the exercises that we do in training will go up. And, you're, you know, there'll probably be some muscle growth. But how much, how little that's going to vary dramatically between individuals. So to answer the question, what would be the one thing that I think, the one belief that we could change that would make us uh, more insightful? It would be, okay, I, don't, I, I can prescribe training now, but I don't know what the effects will be. The only way I, so the best system for me to introduce is Okay, I plan. I I plan in detail in the short term, but I leave. I, but I'm very open to change, and change can be driven by metrics. In other words, depending on the scenario, individual sport, team sport, levels of equipment, levels of trust in various metrics, you can measure, and if those measures can inform your judgment, maybe they can help you change or more reliably. It's dialogue with an experienced, educated athlete. So, okay, how did that feel? Do you think it was effective? Could we tweak anything to make it that bit better? So there needs to be some ongoing evolution. Now, I think that sounds like a very obvious change. And, and maybe it is really simplistic. But if you look at training theory as it's presented in most of the literature, and definitely the conventional sports science literature, it's all about, you know, making long-term predictions. It's all about saying, well, if we do this block of training and then this block of training and then this block of training, you will arrive in this place at the right time. And that's clearly not the case. 
And I think that I think that it's a damaging belief because again, it's telling practitioners that you can't predict. This is predictable. You know, but the evidence suggests it isn't predictable. So if it's not predictable, then you can't just uh, plan something in advance and then implement it and ex and not only implement it, but uh, sometimes force yourself to stick to the plan. And there's a psychological influence at play here. If a coach spends a long time developing a plan, they will want to stick to that plan. So what will you will what will happen at some stage? The athlete will be forced to execute a plan when it's not a good idea. Uh, so and and I think all of this goes back to your earlier question. There's an embedded belief that we need to stick to plans, and and that's not the case. I think really for a lot of coaches, planning is actually an exercise in reducing their stress. Because if you think about it, coaches have a very, very hard task, a really hard, complicated, complex task. How can I get this person from this level of performance to this level of performance by this time? That is hard. And it, it may make people anxious, stressed, feel uncomfortable. And having a plan that says, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, that reduces that stress. So in a strange kind of way, I, I think a lot of plans are for the coach's benefit, not for the athlete's benefit. This brings us a super interesting point, I think, because in, in I don't know which paper it was, but you mentioned also Steven Pinker, his quote that says, our brains are made for fitness, not for truth. And then, and this made me think that is like our human nature, the path dependence plays against what I think it is a good coach, no? Open to uncertainty, variability, flexibility, not excessive planning, not excessive control, no? As you said, how this tendency of, of controlling everything in the coach uh, mind can play against the, the team. Well, um, what I say there is things are obviously changing and in you know I, I, I work across a number of, of sports at the moment and even if you take football as an example a lot of coaches are currently very progressive they're very good at um communication, engaging the players, uh, designing very flexible structures, designing very flexible tactics. But if you go back 10 years in football, or if you go to different countries in football, those philosophies can change dramatically. So we're kind of at this interesting time when there's a lot of uh, flux, a lot of change in the different approaches that coaches are taking. Now that's just in football. You go to other sports, NFL for example, and the, there's very strongly embedded beliefs that are very slow to change. And again, that's a cultural thing. 
so um, so there's a there's variation that I can see across across country, across across different sports, but things are definitely progressing. Things are moving forward. Uh, I think the one of the issues and one of the things that causes this pack dependence um, in a lot of high performance sports is the fact that change is difficult. Change takes energy. You have to, you know, and because they're fast moving, uh, high pressure environments, a lot of time people don't want to change. They're, everybody says they're open to change. That's, you know, as humans, we all say, oh, of course we're open to change. But when you actually have to make a change, that takes energy. You have to push a change. You have to evolve new processes to implement that change. You have to change how you're educating, how you're communicating with, with other members of the support team. So making change is difficult. And in the heat of battle, in the heat of the moment when pressure is on, we're always inclined to revert to uh, what we know how we did it before. There, there's this one other point I'd make here, and I think that uh, change is coming, but that change seems to be driven primarily by practice. Like what coaches, innovative coaches are doing at the very edge of performance. For the most part, it's not been driven by the literature. So I think what's very interesting to me is that I think most of the innovation, most of the drive to, to make positive change is actually coming from coaches. And there's an interesting disconnection, a, a disconnect between what's happening at the you know top levels of, I, and I think football is probably the best example at the moment, especially football around in Spain, Italy. There's a lot of innovation there. But if you look at the theory, if you look at the science, the published literature, that seems to be very much uh, stuck in the past. Now, I know there's examples of very innovative papers. I think uh, the Complex Systems and Sport Group, uh, Professor, Professor Natalia's publications, I think they're very progressive. And, and they, uh, you know, they're pushing the concept of complexity and ma making it more accessible to practitioners. But a lot of training theory, a lot of published studies seem to be very much rooted in, uh, in the past. Uh, and I'll give you an example. At the start, we talked about periodization. Periodization is a a kind of a set of rules to enable you to plan. But it's a set of rules that doesn't account for individual variability and the broad extent of inter-individual variability. It doesn't account for the influence of the psycho-emotional factors on training adaptation. Never is any is the is the value of players' belief, uh, players' emotional engagement with training, never in the periodization is that even mentioned. 
but it's it's clear to us now that that is a very big influence on how you respond to training, whether that training is technical, tactical, physiological. It, th- it just neglects it. I think, John, this is a bit related. I don't know if, if it's the reason how it's so difficult for us coaches to change. Like it's quite clear that nowadays, if, if you are not conscious, we coaches prefer to stick to one measurement, not one number that tells you information instead of having a, a, a whole picture, but not a clear number of a certain factor. Like we prefer to stick to easy measurements, uh, objective things instead of taking subjective information. And, and I don't know if this is our suboptimal behavior that we don't want to spend more energy if, if it's not needed because we have evolved from that. But I, okay, I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it's a really important point. And here's what I'd say there. If you go into uh, a high level professional clubs, organizations at the moment, you will see a lot of new technology. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it is the metrics from that new technology that is driving decision-making. So the number says, I should do this or I shouldn't do this. So and for me, that's a problem. Now, just as an example, if you go into the medical world at the moment, okay, one of the biggest problems in me- in, in medicine today is overdiagnosis. So what is overdiagnosis? Overdiagnosis is when we have lots and lots of new tests, lots of new equipment, very sensitive. You come in and the easiest thing for the doctor to do is say, well, we will put you into that test, that test, that test. You get back numbers. Those numbers are communicated to the patient. You do a lot of tests, you're going to find something. But what is not clear is, is it important? Is this something that might kill you in 50 years, but you're 80 years of age now, so it doesn't matter. So why am I stressing you about this? So overdiagnosis is recognized in you know, all of the, the top three medical journals in the past two, three years have highlighted overdiagnosis is driving, uh, it, it's, it's negatively influencing patients' health through mechanisms like the nocebo effect where all of a sudden the, the patient's expectations are, oh my God, I'm sicker than, I'm taught, than I thought. Oh my God, I'm, I'm more vulnerable than, than I thought. So that's a really, really good example. And it's the most investigated. Now you come back to professional f- sport and we've lots of new tech. We're measuring lots more things, but we don't know how important those things are. And we don't know what they're really telling us. Best example within sport is injury risk. Lots of companies are saying, you know, this will give you a good indication of your injury risk, but we don't really have anything. You know, that's that's not supported by the science at the moment. So in a sense, there's this uh, climate of fear, especially in, you know, uh, NBA, NFL, uh, professional football. Because injuries are so expensive, we're responding to all these metrics, but we're not putting them in context. 
you know, all of this is me going the long way around, coming back to your point about subjective measures. Subjective measure, measures are the subjective measures from an educated athlete. When that educated athlete has a shared vocabulary, a shared language and terminology with the coach, that's priceless. And I would say that there is no technology or no metric that outperforms that level of honest, open communication. You're using a shared language uh, with the coach. Now, that said, I think what we don't do well at the moment is formalize that. In other words, build it into a process. So it's no good if a coach talks to this player this week and then maybe he doesn't talk to that player about his health for another three months. It needs to be formalized. It needs to be built into a process. Okay, we're going to have a, a chance to have a short conversation about this every week at this time or every two weeks at this time. So it needs to be formalized. And I think going back to your point, subjective information needs to be treated as a valuable metric. And a lot of forever, a lot of great coaches always do that. Um, and I think if you look back through history, the great coaches have always been the ones that build trust with the athletes. The athlete uh, buys in to the coach. In other words, they believe in the coach. They believe in the coach's um, philosophy. The coach educates the athlete on their philosophy. So there's a whole... Um, I don't know what the right way to put it. It's a whole philosophy that evolves around the coach and the athlete or the coach and the team and the sports staff. And it's a shared philosophy. Everyone knows their place. Everyone does open and honest communications. And I think there is a, a, a sense of a shared mission. There is a sense of purpose. There is a sense of trust. People don't have to like one another, but they have to trust one another. And I think that's something that we totally miss when we do these isolated training studies. We did this exercise for six weeks and this is what happened. So now we're going to put it in this big plan. You know, no, no, I, I don't think, I, I think you need to go back and you need to establish what does the athlete believe? What do they think will work for them? Now, how can we work with the athlete to shape those beliefs and to evolve a process? that involves measurement where appropriate, but definitely subjective information uh, collection and definitely some education. So if you have an athlete that comes in at 20 with very little experience, that you have some way of accelerating their training specific education or their tactical specific education to bring them up to a higher level. Because if I don't understand what you're saying, or I don't understand the words you're using, the technical terms that you're using. I'm not going to buy into that fully. I'm not going to commit fully to what you're trying to express to me. Yeah, or 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 a coach that I don't know. Uh, for example, a strength coach who is obsessed with metrics, no, that thinks that he needs to do so many reps of that exercise in order to have the proper level, but he doesn't notice that. Uh, ordering to his team to make so many sets when they are tired, when they feel fatigued, maybe that makes uh, the team lose trust to him. 
and, and at the end that's worse like this hidden effects this made me think a lot john in one of your the parts of your papers in which you express and i read directly the confusing paradox of human cognition is that we make our best decisions not when we confidently revert to automated rule-based assumptions but when we are uncomfortably aware of the novelty inherent in every complex situation yes so that's um sometimes that's termed cognitive dissonance if i am confused about something you know and i think deeply about it but i have multiple opinions about the same thing like we could go this or we could do that or we could do that i am more likely to make a good decision or better again in a professional sports setup if i share my decision with another staff member and say listen listen this is what i'm thinking check if, you know, do you agree? Is there anything you do differently? Creating that um, confusion makes the decision you you pop out the other end, you make that better. Now, if you contrast to, and let's take periodization as the clearest example. Periodization makes a lot of assumptions around this many reps, this many times for this many weeks. Uh, that is not cognitive dissonance that is a coach wanting certainty it's easy decisions well this is what we know from the past so this is what we'll do so that's easy i'm finished here the, let me stop you here one moment john that you said it no the coach wants to do that amount of sets in order to have the certainty that will happen that that's a, a personal belief but reading you i had it like much more strongly that just if we were much better uh, uncertainty dealers if we would accept much better uncertainty our coaching methods would improve a lot because then we wouldn't prefer objective metrics and just a single number instead of more information open to debate open to address in a new ways complex situations and so on but i don't know if how do you see it about it this how this uncertainty this hate to uncertainty kills us yeah i think that to be a good decision maker you have to em embrace uncertainty you have to you can't th there is no i'm just going to take this answer off the shelf because this is what i always do or this is what i did as an athlete or whatever you can't do that. You have got to do the, the mental labor. You have to do the work in your head. Now, that sounds easy, but it's not. It's, it's especially difficult when you are in a fast-moving professional environment. So decisions are being made like this. You know, people are shouting at you from different directions. You have to make a decision. So I think you have to develop processes. For, for, for example, um, if it is the start of a season and you're, you know, that's a time when you, a coach can put a lot of focused effort into, we need to redesign our processes. What are our processes? What are the things we need to change in our environment? For example, I don't know, it could be moving equipment around in the training room. So because, I mean, even something small like that will influence how players use it or how, how often things are used. But let's say there's, there's multi-dimensional considerations. 
I think there's something around communication. How often do I need to communicate with this athlete? Now, if you talk to coaches, they say, no, I always talk to the athletes. I always look in their eyes. I always do this. And, the, and, and my answer or my response is, but do you really? You know, you think you do, but is it like sometimes you do, sometimes you forget, sometimes you think you do, but you actually didn't. So it, for me, you know, over the, the past, let's say, nine, ten years, what I've started to do is actually make a note. You know, I have a little training notebook and I'll say, did I check with the athlete? Did I ask them this question? I need to make sure I did. Because so many times before that, I didn't. So I, th I think a, a lot of what we need to do as coaches is, as you said, acknowledge the fact that the most important information sits in the athlete's brain. It's not their counter-movement jump. It's what's in their brain. How can I get that out? How can I get that out in a way that is reliable so I can look back through my notebook and see, well, six weeks ago, their responses were really different, you know, because you're not going to remember everything. So there needs to be some way you can formalize it. And that way needs to be practical. It needs to be really quick. And it needs to be, it needs to speak to you as, as the, the coach. You need to understand it. Nobody else needs to understand it, but you need to have some reliable way to recall. Has something changed? And it means a lot, I think, to an athlete. If you can go to an athlete and say, three weeks ago, you said you were getting a lot of pain in your hamstring or fatigue in your hamstring after we did the high-speed session on Tuesday. If you do that to an athlete enough times, an athlete goes, whoa, this coach really pays attention. This coach really you know, is looking out for me. It wants what's best for me. And that type of belief in the athlete will lead to more engagement, more trust. Um, that athlete will be more confident when they train. They'll be more open to speak to you. So I think it's something that we don't factor in or we don't account for in our training philosophies. Or I've never seen it talked about in a, a coaching course, but it's the type of thing that I think we should be better at. I hope that makes sense. I think it makes John, and now, could you develop a bit more now that you have explained this notebook example in which field now you are coaching and working, which kind of athletes, and how is this management with this notebook? Which, which role the notebook plays in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, well, so um, the notebook is just an example. I guess the key point I was trying to make was we need some way of ensuring that we are consistent with athletes. If we keep asking the athlete the same question and keep forgetting the answer, like the athlete won't forget, we might forget because we're dealing with 22 athletes. So I think that that um, extra investment where you make a note of what the athlete said, okay, they were tired there, you know, you have, you have a record. That allows you to go back, talk to the athlete, and the athlete goes, oh, Okay, this coach remembers. This coach paid attention. This coach obviously um, feels that working with me in some way is important. Now, uh, to go back to your to, to to this question in terms of how that would work in practice, it could be if you know with a team sport, it could be a field session, it could be a gym session, and you just have a notebook stuck in your shorts and it's 
you know, if someone says something to you, says something to you, and you think, okay, that might be important, you just make a quick note, stick it in your notebook. My process would, would be, if I was in training camp, I would do that. I would have a small notebook like this. I'd write everything down. And then that night, before I go to bed, I'd have a big notebook like this, and I'd write a, a page. And I'd write, here's the follow-up for tomorrow. Here's who I need to talk to. Here's who I need to check in and say, how's that feeling today? And again, it's all with the purpose of not losing information that is exchanged in conversation. And then there's a secondary purpose, which is building trust. And it's for the coach as well to, you know, we should be paying attention to what the, what the player or athlete says. We should be making note of it. It shouldn't just be, oh yeah, okay, I'll remember that. And then two days later, we're asking them the same question and, and the athlete or player is saying, I told you that two days ago and you forgot. I think this point is super interesting because at least nowadays, we are not able to measure, to express objectively the amount of trust between a player and a coach. But it's also a fact that can condition a lot the adaptations, if, if he improves or not. No, absolutely. And that's why I think that these type of considerations, these relationship considerations, they're not things that are just nice to do. These are important because these will influence how well the athlete responds to training and how well they perform, probably how much they get injured. It'll influence all these things. And I think um, just very, very simply and quickly, the mechanism is if I am a little bit more anxious, if I feel there is distrust, if I don't have, if I don't value the advice of the support team or the coach, or if I have any concerns about my place in this team, then all of that translates to a heightened sense of risk. And a heightened sense of risk translates to a change in the chemicals your brain releases, which translates to a change in hormonal circulation uh, in your body. So if you, were, if you were a little bit more anxious, a little bit less secure, you feel a little less safe, you feel a little less competent in your professional environment, you are going to be um, more afraid of risk. And more afraid of risk translates to, I'm going to move slightly differently. I'm going to be very sensitive to pain, fatigue, discomfort. Um, I'm going to be sensitive to anything that I feel is a challenge. And that, that makes, an, that makes a, an athlete vulnerable. Contrast that with, you know, let's say, the same athlete, or if, if you were to genetically engineer, if you were to cut, if, if you were to take a genetic sample from an, an athlete now, and make two of them that are genetically the same, with the same training histories, the only difference between them is one is feeling insecure, one is feeling secure. I'm confident in my coach. I trust my coach. I trust my teammates. Uh, I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in the training I've done. I believe it's effective. 
you will have totally different physiological responses, very well, very different physiological responses to any imposed training. Now, I think that makes a very logical sense, and there's a huge scientific argument for that. But contrast it with what we normally, how we normally think in training science. We normally think training is a, well, we put a known input in here and a predictable output comes out here in terms of how somebody responds. Do they get faster, stronger, bigger, whatever it is. And we, as I said, in the periodization literature, we never mention psycho-emotional effects. It's just not mentioned. But they're a huge driver. And it's something the coach can control by designing the environment, by designing the processes, by designing communications, um, by, uh, by, by influencing how support staff interact with players and athletes. Sorry, John. I, th I feel like if I ask a normal coach why we plan, why we periodizate, the reply might be no, just to control, to, to, to know what we should do. But same like in the beginning, we are not conscious about all the influences we have had from mechanical uh, mindsets, from I like a lot how you mentioned Taylor, no? The influence of Taylor. So if I would ask to you why we feel that a good coach needs to plan and above all uh, objective metrics, why is that? Where does come this, this thought? Well, I think this is the tricky part of it because, so let, let me put it this way. Let's say we have traditional periodization and I've provided a lot of arguments against traditional periodization. It doesn't mean everything in traditional periodization is wrong. You know, it just means that we need to evolve this. You know, call it periodization if you want, but it needs to be something completely different. And that pack dependence you talk about, we need to tear that up. We need to stop that pack dependence because it still influences our decisions. Even though if you talk to any really good coach, they know that, well, psychological factors have an influence and relationships have an influence. They know a lot of these things, but it doesn't affect how they plan because sometimes everything isn't put together in a coherent philosophy. So, yeah. First of all, let me ask, did that address your question? And if not, can you point me in the right direction? Yes, but now I would like, if you can, to explain a little bit how uh, Taylor influence and then how these uh, more mechanical systems mindset has affected how we think about periodization nowadays. Okay, perfect. So for anyone who doesn't know, so uh, Taylor was uh, a research in industry back at the turn of the 20th century. And he pioneered time and motion studies in a, um, a machine uh, it was a machine assembly work line. So I would assemble this part of the machine, then I'd pass that to you and you put something else on and then you put something else on. And 
Yes, it was effective in that very simple mechanical task. Now, that obviously at the time resonated, agreed with planning philosophy in general. And you can see this in, in military planning. If you think about World War I, we're going to get these thousands of people to jump up and run and then jump into another hole. Like that was, you know, it was very, uh, it, it was very simplistic. It wasn't in any way complex. It was simple. And that's maybe a good way to think of it is there's a, a concept in medicine called the biomedical model. And the biomedical model, again, when we talk about PAT dependence, this has had a huge influence on healthcare throughout uh, you know, from early 20th century on, uh, until now. The biomedical model, if you have pain, that is caused by damage somewhere in your periphery, some damage to tissues. Damage to tissues, signal goes up your nerve and you experience it as pain in the brain. And that pain is directly related to the extent of the physical damage. Or if you were sick, it's because you caught something, a virus, germs, whatever it might be. It's this very simplistic model. It's a model that didn't um, factor in the fact that what is happening in your brain, your thoughts, your philosophies, your beliefs, your emotions, influence how your body responds in every way, how your immune system responds, how you move, uh, your, how you experience pain, all of those things, they're not disconnected. Your brain and body aren't really two separate entities. They're one separate entity that work together. Uh, and I guess this is clearest in, in pain science at the moment, whereas pain can emerge from multiple different factors. Pain can be driven by your brain. Pain can be driven by pain from your periphery, or sorry, by from damage to your periphery. But again, the extent of pain that you experience is not is not governed slowly or solely uh, by the extent of the damage to your tissues. There's a whole load of factors that go into the pain experience that are not just related to tissue damage. So, sorry, I'm, I'm starting to go off track there. So if you think of the biomedical model, biomedical model, brain, body, separate. Now, what training science did was it looked to what was happening in the medical world and medical beliefs and thought, okay, well, brain and body are separate and we'll consider them separate entities and we'll train them differently. So when we're training the body, that's like we're, uh, we're doing a very mechanical process. If I give it this much training stimulus here, this will be the adaptation that comes up here. And you read periodization papers and that's exactly what it is. I'm going to do this for four weeks, this many times on these days, and then you will have enough strength to do the next phase, which will be something else, which might be power or speed or whatever. So the biomedical model drove a lot of, uh, drove training theory until we've arrived now where the biomedical model is clearly uh, not adequate, insufficient, untrue. But we still have the legacy. We still have the history wrapped up in all our processes for planning, for prescribing training, 
And even though there's no scientist now will support the biomedical model, it was, you know, there's obviously extensive complexity within this system. Actually, John, you have summarized it really well, like how from a belief that was valid in a specific point in history, we have ended up behaving according to that belief, which is not valid anymore, I think. I think uh, with all your papers also, you uh, talk a lot that the future of periodization needs to embrace all this uncertainty, complexity, but also towards individualization. Yeah, well, I, I think periodization needs to evolve to embrace, you know, a number of concepts, I think. And a lot of those can be summarized as we can't accurately predict or even adequately predict. So that should change what we do and how we do it. And I think in some sports that that is happening. Uh, I think we need to factor in the the influence of beliefs in terms of driving training adaptations. We need to recognize the individuality. Now that becomes difficult in some contexts. So for example, if you're working in a big university and you have to look after 300 athletes, you can't individualize. But what you can do is make, uh, make progress. So for example, if you have had previous hamstring injuries, here's, here's recommendations, or we're not going to do this on this time, or you have to do an extra bit of warm up here. You can make um, generalized recommendations that help periodize for groups, or sorry, individualize for groups. Now, if you're working in track and field, for example, and you're working with one high level athlete, it's very easy to individualize. In football context, for example, uh, providing there's enough staff in the organization, it's pretty simple to individualize uh, rehab, RTP uh, training. Now, yeah, but but some things obviously in team context can't be individualized all the time. But it's not about trying to be perfect. It's about trying to move in the right direction and improve uh, processes. And, and I think a lot of time when when we talk about individualization, um, we fail to recognize that if you are in a in the middle of a season in a high pressure environment that's really fast moving, it's very hard to individualize sometimes unless you build in the processes uh, early in the season or in previous seasons. So, for example, if you're an elite player uh, in a team sport, we know your weaknesses. So we kind of factor those into your training in the week. That's designed early, um, you know, and you have a kind of a decision making tree. Maybe if someone comes in and they're they're fatigued as they report themselves subjectively, and maybe there's a metric or two underneath that that can support that, then here are our options. So there's ways that you can um, streamline or uh, make decision-making more efficient. Because what you don't want as a practitioner is to be in a training room with 20 players, and then there's a one, two, three, four, five players waiting to talk to you because they have a problem. And they want to know, well, what do I do? 
because then that's kind of overload for you. So again, I guess the key thing I'd say is it's not about trying to be perfect. It's trying to gradually educate players as well. So instead of coming to you with problems all the time, they're coming to you and just checking their solutions. Uh, my left hamstring is fatigued every Wednesday morning when we're in the gym because of, we, we do some high intensity session on Tuesday. You know, so it's feeling fatigued today. So I, I think and I won't do this, this and this, or I'll just do one set of this. That's what you want, that type of dialogue, that type of educated player who's coming to you with solutions that they that they have devised themselves. And then you can just um, quality check those solutions. Now, if you have a dialogue like that, it becomes very efficient. If you have athletes that you don't educate, that you don't uh, talk to, if you don't kind of nurture or grow their understanding, then they're always going to be waiting for you to tell them, okay, this is what you do. And that feels good as a coach sometimes to have a line of people waiting for you, but it's not good. It's not, you know, it, it's not good practice because you're building, they rely on you, they need you, whereas you need to train them to be, not to need anyone. I love that you that you make this point because I think this is what actually a coach is, no? Like a person that helps in order to be independent as soon as needed, like to be able to make their own decisions about their own body, not to all the time look for help, look for somebody who tells them what to do. I really loved that you make this point. John, say it, sorry. Yeah, so it's just last point then. I, I, I think this kind of nicely goes back to the, you know, the path dependent concept. We have never valued player education in the sports science. Great coaches have done it forever. I'm sure they were doing it in Roman or ancient Greek times, but it's never in the literature. We rarely talk about the need to educate athletes. We talk about training. This is what you do. This is what you get. And we, we um, undervalue how important coach or athletes beliefs, trust, engagement is. Uh, I think the great coaches do, but we don't teach young coaches to do that. And I think that that's something that we could do that would um, have, have a lot of impact uh, very easily right now. John, we are reaching the, the end part of the episode. And I've been amazed by this uh, mentality, man, mindset, these values behind the, the your training methods. And I see a person who is talking and like, I really admire how uh, you are able to reason behind your team, your players. So now looking back in your, in your coaching life, your coaching path, which lessons would you give to a 20 year old coach, a coach who is learning in order to, to follow a similar one develop a, a critical spirit as I feel that that you have? Well, first of all, thanks. That, that's very nice of you to say. I, I don't necessarily agree with anything that you've said, but <laughs> what I would say is advice to a young coach. I, I, it's very basic. I feel, sorry, John, but I feel that you have been able to like stop the river flow, say stop, 
look what is surrounding us, look what has influenced you from the past and say, okay, I'm going to create my, my path, no? my, my valid, my scientific evidence uh, methods. I don't know if you agree with that and I don't know that you feel that you could give any recommendation. Well, first of all, I, I do agree with that. I, and I think that there's a key point there and that is I think the biggest danger uh, for coaches is sometimes we have success where success is you work with an athlete that wins and we're inclined to believe that it was because of what I did that the athlete won. And then that belief becomes really embedded and then whatever that was becomes what I always do. And I think it brings us back to that path dependent point. We need to be able to look at what we do from a critical point of view. So one of the things that I've changed over the past 10 years is uh, now if I, you know, if, if I go into a, a project and it could be a, a competitive period or a competitive tournament, I'll try and evaluate myself the same way as an athlete would. Like at the start, I'll in my notebook, I will have, these are my goals. These are going to be my processes. You know, this is what I'm all, I'm, go, I'm going to do every day. I'm going to do this, 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 this. And then I'm going to evaluate myself in the end, you know, at the, at the end of the tournament from a critical perspective. And I'm going to try and learn. Because I found that for maybe, you know, 10 years, 15 years, there wasn't that critical analysis. It was just all an assumption that if something good happened, it was me. If something bad happened, it was someone else. And that sounds like a childish thing, but it took a long time to realize if I want to be better, I have to put everything I do under the microscope and pull it apart and see, okay, that was good. That seemed to work, but that was really bad. You know, so it's kind of the ability to be self-critical, to review what you do, to try and learn from your mistakes, but not to do it in a way that destroys your confidence. Because that happened to me as well. I just destroyed my confidence by seeing all the mistakes and not, not valuing any of the good, the good things. So I hope that made sense. But that would be my advice if I was talking to a, a younger me. I feel it makes a super, super big sense. And I'm really happy about having listened to this advice. Well, look, uh, I enjoyed the conversation, uh, Marty, and I hope your listeners do too. I Thank you very much, John. I, I really enjoyed uh, knowing this, I would say, amazing professional, no? And I'm not talking about if you win more, if you win uh, less, but about this having this critical spirit, always analyzing consciously what to do, how to do, the better for the players, not the coach. And also all, with all your research, with all your your papers, how much you have helped me, but also, I guess, many other coaches. So well, it has been amazing to, to know this professional, but even more to know your, the person and, and how nicely have you behaved and to give me the, the opportunity. Few years ago, reading you for first time, I couldn't imagine that I would be having this chance of, of being discussing together. So thank you very much about that. No, my pleasure. And I really enjoyed it, Marty. And uh, thank you for the invitation to talk to you. 
I wish you the best, John. Thank you very much.